0: I think I was in middle school when I first fell in love with musical worship. Um, I remember I was at a church. It's kind of a larger church, and they had, a, they had a band, like a kind of professional band that played for the youth, very contemporary music. I loved it. Um, but they did a lot of like original pieces. They did a lot of the kind of popular, famous songs, but they also did a lot of original pieces. Um, and there was this uh, one song that they played, it was an original piece that that spoke to me and I think kind of shifted my heart in some meaningful ways. Not just because the words had a, had, a, had a weight to them, but because, especially as, I think as, as a youth, I was keen to the fact that I think uh, they sung it, they played this music, and it was authentic. That they were authentically worshiping Jesus and they were authentically seeking Jesus and they were looking for their hearts to be molded by Jesus uh, and what they sang and what they played, um, but there's, the song had a, had a couple of verses that I that as I said just shaped me, shifted my heart in some meaningful ways. And I actually um, I re-listened to, to them. I um, actually it's a regular song I listen to on my worship list. But I, I just want to read a couple of a couple of, of lines from the song because I, I think, as I said, it just it pushed me. But it says, "Speak," in this close communion, though this hour seems timeless, still. I await the words that bid me come. Breathe in me, Holy Spirit, though when my morrow comes, to follow when this song is done. So I wait the words that you say. I open my life longing just to hear these words that you say. Now one of the beauties, uh, one of the beautiful things about music, and specifically I think about musical worship, is that it often expresses what words alone do not express. It allows our heart to express what I think sometimes words alone cannot express. And I think this song in particular helped me when I was in middle school. It helped me um, express a longing, what my words, I think, alone failed to express. I had begun to really yearn to hear God. To want to hear God. To hear his clear instruction to know his will to live it out i was learned i was i was i was yearning to be led by god and those words i await the words that you say i open my life longing just to hear these words that you say it became a it became a almost a um like a headline for a season in my life And it has shaped my life in so many powerful ways. This initial hunger to hear God, to know God, shaped my life, starting in that middle school, and it just blossomed up over the years. Well, we we worship in song to express those deep yearnings. We worship in songs to to express those deep loves, this awe that we might uh, find in God, this love of God. We worship in song in order to shape and express our hearts. Well, like this song, uh, the Psalms do something very similar. They express the same yearning. They express the same awe of God. They express the same love of God. They'll express confession. They'll express all these different components of, of of our spiritual lives. Um, but we're reading a psalm this morning that expresses for God's um, leading. It expresses a yearning for God's leading. It expresses uh, um, God's glory and a wanting for God's word. We're going to be in Psalm 19 this morning. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there now. If not, it'll be on the screen above. And I'm, I'm actually, today I'm reading from, um, I think it's NLTs. What, what what I'll be reading from this morning. As I said, I kind of balance between NLT and, and ESV from time to time, but, um, but psalms are, are essentially songs and prayers that we've been studying these last few weeks, they're essentially songs and prayers that have been given to us to be an example of what faith looks like, to be an example of what it looks like to seek God, to be an example of what it looks like to communicate with God. But these these psalms are are lyrics to songs. They're words of prayers that teach, lead, and mold our hearts. This particular song molds our heart in a way that it creates a hunger, a yearning, and a desire to seek a God who speaks to us. We seek a God who speaks to us. Well, let's go ahead and take a look. We're going to be picking right up at verse 1. And it says, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. We're going to come back to that particular idea, this idea that they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard. Right? Uh, pi- picture that for a moment. I right? Picture that for a moment. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard. Um, they're speaking without speaking. There's no auditory. There's nothing. We don't, we don't hear the trees just open up their mouths saying God is good. Yet there's, there's a message said within them. Continuing on, verse 4. Yet their message has gone. They, they don't speak, but their message has gone throughout the earth, and their words to all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. It burns forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. It rejoices like a great athlete eager to run the race. The sun rises at one end in the heavens and follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heart. Now the first part of this psalm, verses 1 through 6, is speaking about this natural world that we live in, and how this natural world proclaims the word of God. It proclaims some truth about God, all right? Specifically, as we saw in verse two, it says it proclaims that He to, to make Him known. The natural world shares this message, sends this message to make God known. And as I said, we're going to expand on that in a little bit. But the simple idea from these six verses is that all of creation teaches us about the greatness of God. That if we listen, we see and we can hear that it shows us the greatness of God. All right, many of us know that feeling that we might, might, might look at when we're on a beach we're kind of looking at the sun sets as it, as it hits the ocean. We might have this kind of a warm feeling something speaks to us. Something, something kind of expresses this spiritual, spiritualness, this, this maybe even a longing for God as we see beauty. As we behold something grand in nature, right? And that's what this this psalm is speaking to. But notice that it transitions. We're going to see that it transitions. It goes from this natural world, this natural universe that speaks about the glory of God, that communicates uh, the greatness of God, and it transitions to specific instructions, Specific instructions. And, and for us modern day Christians today, we might look at that and understand, well, what is that specific instructions? That, that is the word we have in Scripture. That is the word that was given to us in Jesus, in, in the flesh and blood that, 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 that dwelt 2,000 years ago. That was God. God's very clear, specific instruction. Scripture. But he's shifting, the author is shifting from this broader message that we might see, uh, and I might even use the word of this vague message in a way, but this message that we see in nature around us, in the context of our lives, and to begin to narrow that down to this more specific word, the specific instruction, the specific guidance that we get from God. Starting in verse 7, let's read. It says, The instruction of the Lord are perfect. Reviving the soul, the decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for the living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the the Lord are true. Each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. I just want to dwell on that for a second. Do you read the Bible that way? Do you read the Bible with this kind of like um, passion? That this is more desirable than wealth? Would you rather be an expert on Scripture or a millionaire? I think it's funny. I was thinking about that this morning as I was rereading this. Like if somebody's going to be, even elevate that, even a billionaire. Somebody's going to be a billion dollars or I can have a mastery over Scripture. Which would I choose? And it's funny because one of those is a lot more easily attainable than the other. And yet we get caught up Chasing all these other things in life rather than developing this mastery of scripture. But if you just read this, this is showing us the heart of something, the heart of a person that's got the right idea of God. I'm just going to read it again. Verse 10, it says, they are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are warning to the, your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. In short, God's instruction is good. It is good to be in the will of God. It is very good. It's what the psalmist is saying. So he, he begins, this author begins, by talking about the world around us and how it proclaims a message. How nature, and I'm going to even just kind of add the context of our lives, they kind of proclaim this message. And then he transitions, he shifts, and he talks about this more specific teaching of God, about the law of God, the instructions of God, the guidance of God, that it is good to be in the will of God, that it is good to hear God. It's a good thing. It's a really good thing. Then he talks about the goodness of God's instruction, but then he transitions one more time. He shifts from talking about this goodness of God or to hearing God, and then he begins to develop this healthy fear of sin, or at least he's expressing his healthy fear of sin. Let's read. In verse 12, How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sins. And then he concludes this word with the following. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart Be pleasing to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The heart of this psalm, the heart of this psalm, what it's pointing to is the goodness of God's leading. It is good to be led by God. It is good to hear God and to be led by God. It's the goodness of God's revelation, what's revealed to us what God shows us about himself, what God teaches us about himself, what God says about himself, God's revelation is good. Right? It is good to be led by God. So it's only natural that our hearts ought to, should yearn to be led by God. Right? If it's good, and if we know it's good, and we believe it's good, then it's an only a natural thing that our hearts are going to be hungry for that. That our hearts are going to hunger for that. That our hearts are going to want that. And not just like this passive want, but a real, sincere, passionate, yearning wanting. I want to be led by God. There's nothing in life that I want other than to be led and instructed to be in the will of God. I don't want to chase anything that isn't from God, that isn't the instruction of God, that isn't the will of God. I don't want that. I don't care if it's riches. I don't care if it's sweetness to my appetite. I don't care what it is. I want God's instruction. That that's a heart of somebody who really wants to be led by God. But the psalm takes us through a journey. I think a journey in theology. A journey in this investigation of God. It begins in nature. All right, these are some of the verses that says, "The heavens proclaim the glory of God, Skies proclaim His workmanship. they make Him known, they speak without sound, their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth. God is made known in nature, and we can learn about God through nature there 's a whole field within theology that 's kind of become uh, popularized in, in recent years it 's called natural theology. It's not necessarily new, it's been around for a while, but the, the idea is, is that what, what, what can we study, what can we learn about God in nature? Nature is the fingerprints, or in nature sorry, we see the fingerprints of God, that it says something. We can learn something about it. All of nature has been created by God. We can learn from the creator through its creation. That's the, that's the goal, the aim of, of natural theology, that we can look at creation and learn something about the creator. Right, creation has the fingerprints of God on it. We can learn something there. We can study the Creator through the creation. I'm not an art guy at all. I'm not much of an art guy at all. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm really pretty ignorant when it comes to art. I'm just going to be honest. Um, but but there's one artist that I, as a kid, I don't remember what age I was, but I went through, um, I went through some museum or art gallery or something going on about it. But it's Vincent Van Gogh. And as a kid, I remember just journeying through this and I learned some things about the artist that I could see in the paintings. And I learned something from some of these messages that were shared, some of these words that were talked about, Vincent Van Gogh. But that Vincent Van Gogh uh, struggled throughout his entire life with a, with a deep sense of an anxiety and depression. That he was, he, was, he was chronically depressed. Some people even thought he committed suicide. I don't think that's true. If I've heard that's not true. But what's interesting is as you look at Van Gogh's paintings, you see it. At least I can see it. As I said, I'm pretty uh, ignorant when it comes to art, so maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) But if you look at his art, you can see that this is an outlet for him. This was an expression of the man's heart. Of some disappointment, of some sadness, frustrations, whatever it is. You can clearly see this depression in his paintings. You can see it. They look like somebody who had a sad view of life. And you can see it. From Van Gogh's art, we can learn about Van Gogh. And that's the idea, of this natural theology. From the creation, we can learn about the Creator. Now, before we let the hippie in us get too excited, and before we and before we, we, we drop our Bibles and just wander into the woods, we need to know. Natural theology only goes so far, right? It has its limits, right? We can learn uh, a number of things about Van Gogh from his paintings, but you're never going to know him, right? There's only so much you're ever going to learn from Van Gogh by looking at his paintings, right? There's only so much we can, we can figure out about him. You wouldn't even ever know his face. <laughs> you would never know what he looked like if all you ever did was look at his paintings, Natural theology gives us some general ideas. In a way, it aids us. That it aids us. Um, it, actually, natural theology, one of the, the, the points of natural theology is that it enables us to see God everywhere. Not this fantastically clear picture, but it allows us to see this, experience God everywhere. And that's what the psalmist is celebrating. It's not saying drop your Bible, go to the woods. It's saying, man, I'm hungry to see God. I'm hungry to hear God. I'm hungry to experience God. I look for him in the wind. I look for him in the mountains. I look for him in the sun. Everywhere we can see, everywhere we can see some of God's beauty, some of God's glory, the grandness in the stars, the gentleness in the streams, the restoration in and Fallen and Springs. We can see it. We can see something, some message about God. Now, why is a psalm saying this? Why, why is it expressing this? As I said earlier, um, this a psalm comes from the heart of someone who is yearning to be led by God. Yearning to hear God. Like, that's, that's what it's expressing, It's seeing it everywhere and it's celebrating it and it's the heart of someone who is yearning for God, to hear God, to obey God, to be led by God. And it starts with this natural theology because it shows us uh, what a real love for God's word looks like. If you really want to be led by God, you're going to be looking for him. You're going to be yearning for him. You're going to be looking. What are you saying? What are you saying, God? I want to be led by you. The author just doesn't want us to just hear some of God. It wants us to hear all of God. And that should be an important point for us this morning as well. We shouldn't just want to hear some of God. We should yearn to hear all of God. I I want to take every opportunity to hear Him, to experience Him, to be led by Him. I share a little story that happened to me this morning. So my daughter woke up at 5 a.m. It's about right around the time I get up. But I got up, and usually on Sunday mornings, um, I spend time just in prayer, especially before preaching. I, I, I preach that God might interrupt my failures, that my inadequacy in studying the text in, prepar- in preparation for preaching, that he might, just, he might just get the best of the day. And there's just this time of me just kind of allowing myself to kind of stop worrying about things, stop thinking about things. It's an important time for me before preaching. But now my daughter's up, and my wife's trying to sleep, so I take her, and I'm completely distracted for the entire morning. And when we drive over here, she falls asleep in the car, my wife gets out, come up to practice for worship, and I think, okay, this is my opportunity to then pray. Well, I get all ADD and get distracted and start thinking about all these other things, and then my daughter wakes up, and I'm now burdened again. And, and then we come up here, and around like 8.30 or something like that, I realize, you know what, uh, I, I forgot to send the PowerPoint. And like for the first time ever, literally never do this, but I, I usually write my PowerPoint on, a, on my laptop, but today I actually wrote it on my, on my desktop. So I'm like, well, i got to drive home. <laughs> so I drive home, I come back, um, and my daughter's asleep again. And I realize, God's like, okay, let's try this again. Right, um, But there's a, there's a sincere desire or yearning. There should be a sincere or desire or yearning to see God in even this minor context of your life. The subtle or big things going on. God, what are you saying? I, I long to hear you. Uh, we know body language is important, right? Hopefully we know that. <laughs> body language is an important thing in communication. I remember hearing this in like a psychology class some years ago. And they said that body language makes up 55% of all human communication. I, I, I still don't understand how they come up with that number 55%. Like, how do you figure that out? I don't know. But we know it's important, right? We know that if we want to communicate well, uh, I need to learn to communicate, to go beyond, beyond just precise words, the way my, my face, what I'm doing with my arms, how I position my body, whatever, all of that plays a, a, a role in my communication, and also my ability to interpret someone else. We know it's very important in our marriages. Right? If I walk home in the door and my wife says hello and her, her arms are just crossed. It's like this. Well, I know there's a problem. Right? Body language is important. It communicates a whole lot of things that words alone don't communicate. Right? But if I ever want to really learn to hear my wife, I need to learn to pay attention to her body and not just these words. Right? I need to learn to pay attention to, all the, to the, what's going on beyond just the words alone. Right? Uh, but yearning to hear God is more than sitting back and waiting for him to speak in a burning bush. Right? The, the, this desire to hear God is going to go beyond this. It's like, well, I'm just going to sit back and wait for God to shout to me in a megaphone. Right? If you want to hear God, that, that's going to translate into something else. It's going to translate into you seeking to listen for you, yearning. That yearning should translate to you seeking to listen, to hear, to be instructed, to be led by God. And I would say it's imperative today. It's imperative today, right? Uh, sometimes I, I hear people say, well, I, you know, I wish I'd, I'd hear from God. And my thing is, man, are you, are you even listening to what he's already said? Scripture is so incredibly clear. Are you, are you reading it? Are you reading it? Like, are you studying it as if it's God's word to you? Right? But yearning to hear God is more than sitting back and waiting for him to speak to you in a burning bush. If we want to hear God, if we want to be led by God, uh, we must be carefully attuned to everything he will say. Listening intently, looking everywhere, everywhere he might speak. Everywhere he might recall us to remember a word from him, and I'll actually say this morning as I I shared about the story about my my daughter falling asleep Um, before anything else happened this morning. Like I was drawn to this, the words of this passage that your words are sweeter than honey, better than riches. Right, that that idea. And so to me, like, I knew that's what I needed to center my heart around. And when when I found myself here for the second time with a daughter asleep in the car, it was that instruction from that passage that came to my mind. God was reminding me of a word he said through the context, through circumstances in my life. Right? But but look for God. Right? We should be looking everywhere. Our hunger should be that real, real. To hear him in grand, miraculous ways. To hear him in his written word in scripture. To hear him in a gentle breeze or a warm sunset. To hear him as your children play in the yard. They scream at each other. Play whatever game they are playing. All of creation in some fashion proclaims the goodness of God. That's what this psalm is showing us. Now, we, we, we might rightly recognize that sometimes hearing God can be a little subjective. It would be right to notice that, right? Subjective, as in like how I might interpret it might be completely different than how someone else might interpret it. That what my, I might conclude about what God is saying to me might be completely different than what someone else might conclude. Maybe, maybe somebody else would have concluded that the story about, about my daughter sleeping in the car would be about me taking the urgency to wake my daughter up for the, the importance that we must come and praise God this morning. Right? So it's, It would be easy to imagine that somebody could interpret that in a completely different way. And so it begs the question, can we trust it? Can we trust this leading of which God leads our heart? Can we trust what our minds conclude about the context in our lives and what that might mean God is saying to us? I might look at the sun setting and think, wow, look at God's beautiful order. But you can imagine someone else looking at the sun setting and being terrified. The sun is leaving us. God has forgotten us. The light is gone. Right? And you might think, well, that's absurd. But but how, how, how can we discern that properly? How can we discern that properly? It would seem then that maybe we can't trust our hearts. That we can't trust what what thought pops into our brain that we might think God is saying to us. I'm just looking at the world around me. Um, can I really interpret? I, I mean, I can interpret whatever I want. I can conclude whatever I, 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 what I want about that. Years ago when I was a kid, I remember this story. It wasn't a story, I mean, it was happening, it was in the news, but there's a story in the news about this guy who would camp out in uh, bathrooms, um, on the beaches and he would wait for for uh, children to walk in and he would murder them and it didn't last very long before he was caught and he was arrested and he was brought in and they asked why why were you killing these children on the beach like that and he said well god told me to how can you argue with that right in the words of peter what's better to obey god or men we might think, well, God would never tell him to kill someone. Well, think through Joshua and Judges. Right? How do you really know that? If God told me to do it, then all means I should do it, right? It kind of leaves you with this kind of uncomfortable thought of like, how do I argue with that thought? How do I argue with this idea that God told me to kill children? Um, It's common that we talk about um, feelings a lot, or what we feel about God, about what we feel about what God would or wouldn't do or should or shouldn't, or what we should or shouldn't do uh, for God. You know, like, I feel God wouldn't say that or do that. I feel God is telling me to do this or to do that. I'd actually say it's a big mark of uh, today's emerging generation's theology. It's a mark of it. I feel God, I feel God, I feel God in this or that or this or that. Um, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people in which they, they tell me that I just feel like God wouldn't do something like send people to hell. I just, I just, I just don't think that that's God would, would do anything like that. What are you basing that on? I feel like this is what God wants for me to do. I feel it. Um, what do we say to that? Uh, here's a real question to wrestle with. right? When you hear God, or you feel led by God, or you think God is telling you or guiding you or leading you in a certain kind of way, what makes your encounter with God different than the guy who believed that God told him to sit in a, in a bathroom and, and murder a kid? What makes your, your word from God different? And don't just say, well, obviously it's different. How? Why? How do you know? How do you teach someone else that? How do you lead someone else in that? How can we be confident of what God's word to us is? How do I know it's God's word and not just my own thoughts? Not just my own imagination, my own creativity. How do I know the difference between my conscience and and God's word? Uh, Nature gives us general truths. It can give us this general revelation. This general picture. gives us these general ideas. But God gives us so much more than nature. As I said, the the, the psalm takes us through this journey in theology. It only starts with this natural theology. It does not leave us with nature alone. God gave us more than nature alone to know what he said, to figure out who he is, to speak to us, to lead us. He didn't leave us with just these subjective feelings to govern our thoughts. And that's why the psalm transitions. So from 1 to 6, it's talking about this natural theology, but then from verses 7 through 11, it changes the course. From nature to God's clearly given word. Right, the psalm shifts from talking about nature to these specific and clear instructions, commands, and the laws of God. And we have that clearer than ever in the words of Jesus. Right, clearer than ever, who not just said things, but who did things. He didn't just say to love, he showed us what real love is. He was pinned to a cross and bled to get, death for us. He defined what real love looks like. And so there's this clear word in the life and instructions, commands, and the teachings of Jesus. By and large, this passage is addressing the specific word of God. For us this morning, we could take that as the Bible. Today, our reference is Scripture. That's the gauge, it's the measure in which we can detect what is God's word and what is not. Scripture is perfect in its intention. Trustworthy in its purpose and right in its aim. And the better we know it, the better we can translate that, that word from the wind. All right, and I think that's one of the most beautiful things about the incarnation of Jesus. As we, we, so we get ready to celebrate Christmas, Jesus becomes God's clear word to us. That it's not just spoken, but is lived, is demonstrated, is an example. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not just saying that the only way we can hear from God is reading the Bible. I don't believe that is accurate. Right? I think God does lead us in other ways. Uh, rather, what I'm saying is Scripture becomes the pillar uh, which we can go to in order to test what we have heard. It becomes a means for us to test, is this you, God? Or I see it in scripture because here's a very, very, very uh, to me, a very scary truth and it should be to you as well God isn't the only spiritual thing trying to communicate to you on a given day there are spiritual forces that are trying to communicate to you um, if you believe in demons which you should believe in demons if you believe in Jesus then you would, then you would know that's true that's, that's, that's the schemes of the enemy to sway us, to speak to us in ways that distract us, to pull us away, to draw our attention to the wrong thing. Uh, 1 John chapter 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into this world. It talks both about spirits and false prophets. Spiritual things are trying to sway you. This week, there will be spiritual things trying to sway you. There are false prophets. There are humans alive today who are trying to tell you something other than the gospel. That is a truth we live with. It is a truth we see in Scripture. It is a truth we can know. We as God's people need to be on guard. Amen? We need principles. We need instructions to help us discern God's leading. Because we might have a feeling, we might feel something in our hearts, we might be told something from some preacher, we might read something in some spiritual writer... But there is way too much warfare out there to simply trust every word we hear. We must learn to test. We must learn to test them. So here's a a number of, I think, practical steps. Initial steps to test, to discern what what might be God's word to us. First, it should be consistent with Scripture. Scripture. It should be consistent with Scripture. As I said, uh, Scripture is, is, is God's pillar of truth for us. Right? And so it should be consistent with Scripture. Um, and now I'm not saying that, that you know, only, only do things in the Bible, only believe things that are actually in the Bible. Because it might not always be in God's Word. Right? Uh, I remember a number of years ago somebody asked me, like, what, what does the Bible say about dating? How do I learn to date well? You know, what does the Bible say about dating? That it doesn't say anything about dating. It doesn't. Now, there might be other truths. There might be principles, biblical truths, biblical principles. By that, align us or lead us or instruct us or give us some kind of implications about what does this mean. It might, we might find implications that are relevant to dating, but it doesn't actually talk about dating. At least not in the context that we think of it today. Right? Consistency, what it means to be consistent means it doesn't contradict. It doesn't contradict. All right, logically, it's one of the ideas of, of consistency. Something is consistent if it is not contradicting it. Philosophers are con- crazy about consistency. It's a word I remember hearing all the time in my program in philosophy. I heard it all the time. Is it consistent? Is it consistent? Is it consistent? Right, they're obsessed with the word consistent because part of what, if it's not consistent, consistent, it means it's logical nonsense. It's, a, it's, a, it's an easy way to know, is this logical nonsense? If there's a contradiction, right? If you're hearing something from God that it contradicts what's in Scripture, it's logical nonsense, right? If I were to say, I'm a happily married bachelor, that's logical nonsense. You can't be married in a bachelor, right? Um, God will never utter logical nonsense, that's something we can trust. So we can trust that his word will be consistent to with the way he leads us day in and day out. And when we are being led by God, you should be able to find that, that that leading you're experiencing is going to be consistent with what God has already said. It's going to be consistent with what God has proclaimed about what he wants from his people. About what he wants from Christians. It should be consistent with, with the life of Jesus. If God is leading you in some kind of a way, you should be able to imagine that, man, that's something I think Jesus would do. That's a way I think Jesus would maneuver Himself. But if you're looking at it and think like, no, Jesus would never do that. Right, then you know that this may not be consistent. There's a question I asked youth many, 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 many years ago. Would Jesus drive a BMW? I'm not going to talk about that. I wouldn't dare. <laughs> but, but it just kind of raises this question of like, man, is, it, is this consistent with the patterns of the behaviors of Jesus? Is it consistent with the patterns of the behavior of Jesus? God won't tell you to do something he's already told you not to do. He won't. So if you hear a spiritual whisperer or a pastor or a prophet say something that's not consistent with scripture, Run. Run. That the KKK claims to speak spiritual authority, right? He claims to speak spiritual authority in a way that it almost sometimes depicts itself as kind of like a parachurch organization. And I always wonder what would they do when they learned that Jesus was neither white nor American. <laughs> white supremacy—the message of the KKK—is not biblical. It's inconsistent with Scripture, right? I would go so far to say that KKK is satanic in its message. Now I'll say this, that this is something we grow in. Learning to test, learning to to know, is this God, to be led by God, discerning that is something we grow in. Something that we do as we mature in faith. As we take this journey in life with this hunger to be led by God, pursuing scripture, studying it, mastering it, it becomes easier and easier and easier to detect that word from God. We get better at it. I think of the story of Samuel. One of the earliest chapters in the book of First Samuel. We see the story which, which you know, Samuel wakes up and he hears God saying, Samuel, Samuel. And he jumps up and he runs. and He runs to the priest, Eli. He says, yes, what is it? I'm here. And I go back to bed. I didn't call for you. And this repeats three times before then Eli realizes, oh, wait a second. You're hearing God. And then he has to actually instruct and teach Samuel how to discern. He says, oh, respond. Next time you hear it, respond. Yes, Lord, your servant is listening. He was taught to listen. But later in his life, we realize he's an expert at it. He gets better at it. That's something you're born born into. It's something you practice, and you practice, and you get better. And we practice by, by mastering Scripture. We practice by mastering scripture. And that's why I think the second principle is going to be true. The second principle that I, that I want to talk about. It should be affirmed. And I say should be. not always 100% true. But it should be affirmed by spiritually mature people. It should be affirmed in, in the community of Christ. People who you can see and you know. Those people are led by the spirit. They should look at this leading in which you're experiencing, this word or which you might be experiencing, and then you should be saying, yep, that's right. That looks right to me. Now, this isn't foolproof, because certainly you can have spiritually mature people who can be foolish at times. I mean, We even see it in the Bible. Spiritually mature people were foolish at some things and had to be, had to be told in very, you know, very explicit ways. We see it. I mean, there were disagreements between Peter and Paul about whether or not Gentiles should be in the church or what that meant. Right, So that you can see that there's, there's ways it's not always foolproof, but, but but generally speaking, this is something we can trust, and at the very best you could say, man, if I have some word and it's so opposite from what Tom is, then Tom and I should be able to fight it out until we know, oh wait, that's it. That's true, that's not true. We could be able to work through that. Spiritually mature people can be able to do that. if you're feeling God leading you in a way. And then you go and you ask a bunch of spiritually mature people, some mentors or just peers that you you know you can trust. And they all say, um, yeah, it doesn't sound like God. Red flag. Big red flag. Right? Push the brakes, wait on it. Push the brakes and wait on it. Uh, there, there's just two principles right there. Uh, two ways to test what you might be hearing about whether or not um, it's biblically consistent or, or Right, way, right, two ways to know whether or not is this led by God or not, and one would be to know is this biblically consistent? Can you point it out in Scripture? Can you look and see that this is, this is something that jives well with the word that is given, this clear, explicit word that is given to us? Does it contradict with Scripture at all? Does it resonate with Scripture? Does it sound like something God has said or would say? And then, second, it's likely it's going to be affirmed in spiritually mature people. Um, at least uh, be affirmed in, 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 a, in a biblical interpretation. And the third and final principle for us this, this morning is, I think, a broader application. Test it in a submissive and prayerful way. Two words submissive and prayerful. Submissive and prayerful. Now, I'm not just saying pray about it, a lot of times that's what we, we hear. Well, pray about it. Um, You should pray about it. But I'm talking about this as kind of an attitude that you should have when you pray about it. You see, um, honest prayer demonstrates our hearts. Honest prayer demonstrates our heart. And as we are feeling led by God, uh, we should honestly pray to God about it. Because part of what happens is that it shows our hearts in that prayer. How are we coming to God with this? Now this is what I want. Now give it to me because I deserve it. (laughs) That's not the submissive attitude that we are looking for. Once again, red flag. But as we as we submit to God in prayer, our hearts shift. It's one of the powerful things about about honest prayer. It's hard to be egotistical when you are genuinely seeking God's will. It's hard to be selfish. It's hard to pursue sin so relentlessly when you are honestly seeking God, when you're just submitting to the will of God. And I think Psalm 19 teaches us about this. Right? Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, reverence, right? Fear for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. Verse 10 The law of the Lord is true, more desirable and sweeter than honey. Do you yearn? Are you hungry for it? Do you fear God, and are you hungry for what he has to say? I think that's what the submission in a prayerful way really means. Right? Do, you fear, do you have a healthy fear of God, and do you want to be led by God? Check your heart in prayer. Test your prayer with, with, with that. Imagine the heart of the person praying these words. Verses 9 and 10. This is the heart of a person who says that they genuinely want to be led by God. They genuinely want to be led by God, and that's evident in the way they live. It isn't about them. Their ideas or fleshly desires, they don't matter. They genuinely want to be led by God. A person who is submissive in prayer comes to God genuinely wanting God's leading. It's not, how do I get God to do what I want God to do? It's, how do I do what God wants me to do? Two very different types of of thoughts. They have a reverence and respect for God. They treasure his word. They value them. Spiritually led people are marked by their love for God's word. And that's something that's an important thing for us to know. If you really want to be led by God, you're going to be marked with a passion for God's word. It's gonna be. You're gonna be something to try and memorize it. You're gonna be studying it. You're gonna read it. You're gonna read it every day. Because you want to be led by God. You want to know what He has to say for you. Spiritually led people are people marked by their love for God. They are marked by God for their love for God's leading. They respect God. They honor God. They follow God, and that's something you see in their day to day life and their habits. There is this whole attitude of the heart that becomes made visible when they sincerely want to be led by God. You'll see that in their life. Now, we might just ask, well, what if I'm not? What if I what if I don't hunger to be led by God? What if I don't have that kind of a hunger for scripture? I wake up and it just sounds boring. You might not be hungry for God because you're too full of yourself. And that's often, that's often something we face. We fill our lives up with all these other little things that we have no space for the yearning that God has or the yearning that we ought to have for God. Right? You, you might not be hungry for God because you're too full of yourself. So, so when we feel God leading us, it's extremely important that in time we are letting God search our hearts Search through those patterns we have of what are we filling ourselves up with. Search through our patterns of what are we really going after? What are we really looking for in this? And let God reveal to us our true intention. Pray submissively. Pray sincerely seeking God's will and let him show you what you really want. That's important. So that we can stand before him and boldly say, as the psalmist does, your words are more desirable than gold. Your instructions are sweeter than honey. I don't care about what I want. I just want what you want for me. Lead me, God. Don't let me get in my way. Don't let me get in my own way. Interrupt my plans, interrupt my words, interrupt my thoughts, interrupt my desires. I want your instruction, I want your will. If it is genuine submission and humility, that leading you feel or experiencing from God will become more and more clear. If you're like, man, I I think this is what God wants from me, and you take the season to wait and to pray and to submit and to say, God, search my heart. Get it out of me. You're going to find that that leading is going to be more and more clear. He's going to be leading towards, towards it or away from it. God is faithful that way. And this is why timing is so important. Some people feel this instinct that God says do this and they just want to jump into it. Um, God, and I'm going to use this word very carefully, rarely, he rarely operates that way. I'm not saying he he, he never operates that way. I'm just saying he never operates that way. Right? Often God makes people wait and develop their calling. Um, I remember years ago, I believe God had told me who I was going to marry. I was fourteen and it was a pretty girl and she loved Lord of the Rings. And I loved Lord of the Rings. So I thought, this is God. Right? This has to be God. And I went and I spoke to my pastor about it, my youth pastor, and I was like, I think God told me who I'm gonna marry. And then I was like, I think I'm gonna tell her on Sunday. And he's like, No, don't do that. <laughs> And in waiting, I obviously learned to discover that that obviously wasn't true. I learned something from that. Something he actually told me. He said, "Philip, you're smarter than you're mature," and it's true. In waiting, we have greater opportunity to humbly, submissively, and prayerfully consider and clarify calling. In waiting, we have greater opportunity to humbly, submissively, and prayerfully consider and clarify. God's calling. Sometimes waiting is the best thing we can do. I think the last piece about this passage I want to add before we wrap up, because we're way over. How long has this guy been talking? I don't know. Um, This last piece I want to add is this that if we are genuinely being submissive and prayerful, we are going to have a very real fear of sin. And if we're like, I only want what God wants. I want to be led by God. And I want to just break my heart open for God. You're going to find a real, sincere, and healthy fear of sin. Verses 12 and 13 said, How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? That's a, that's a, I don't want any sin in there. Whether I know it or not, cleanse me from these hidden faults. these things, the, the sins that I don't even know about. I'm not just talking about the big ones we all talk about. I'm talking about even those little sins. Maybe there's little bits of arrogance or pride. Those ways in which I don't listen or appreciate or value people. I'm, I, I don't want those sin. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I'll be free of guilt and innocent of great sin there should be a sincere sense of being aggressive to avoid disobedience. That's a mark that you're in the right place with God. Right? If you're feeling like, God's leading me to do this, and yet you don't even care about the places you are disobedient, I'm concerned about your intentions. And right? once again, this isn't foolproof, but it is a mark. It's a mark that you are, that you are, that you are being led by God. A lot of times, that's lacking in people who are too eager to say, God is telling me to do whatever. Sometimes there's not a healthy, a healthy enough fear of sin to steer them away from it. Um, by and large, people who are submissive, humble, and prayerful have a genuine and healthy fear of disobedience. They don't want to disobey. They want to be in God's will, not out of it. They don't want to be disobedient in sin. They don't want to be disobedient by pleasing people more than God. That's going to be important. That's an important mark. If you really want to be led by God, then you're going to be somebody who's, who's like, I don't care what people say. I don't care what people think. I'm here because I'm obedient. A.W. Tozer wrote, I claim the holy right to disappoint men in order to avoid disappointing God. That's the heart of someone who wants God's will. Right? That's the heart of somebody who really wants to be led by God. They say, I don't care what people say. I don't care what people say. I claim the holy right to displease people for the sake of pleasing God. When seeking God's will, when questioning a voice, when discerning God's word, have that kind of heart. In submission and prayer... Seek out God's will. Right, so to recap, three things here. Seek it in Scripture. Right, you're feeling led by God? Seek it in Scripture. Is this consistent? Is this consistent? Seek it in his saints. Seek it in his community. Seek it in his church. Is this God's will? Does this sound right? Does this sound true? Seek it in submission and prayer. I want to conclude by just reading this verse 14. It says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. These are good words to pray. These are very good words to pray, especially when you mean it. and saying it, let my words, my prayers, my heart, my actions, God, lead me in a way that my life pleases you. Let my life please you. Do you yearn to be led by God? Do you really yearn to be led by God? To be obedient? To love him with the way you live? The way you treat people? The way you spend your money? The way you you talk to people? With the times you you, you talk about him with, with those who know him or don't know him? Do you really, really, really yearn to be led by God? Maybe God's even. Maybe there's even a specific picture in your mind about what God is saying to you. Let that sink. Let that sink in. Right? Do you yearn to be led by God, not just to follow him, not just to, not just following the God you want him to be. Because sometimes we do that. Sometimes we have our own ideas of what God is, and we and, we, and that's the God we want to follow. The God who just wants to do whatever you want. Right? But, but to yearn you follow to be led by the God who doesn't care about what you want for him. Who is going to be true to who he is regardless of what you want. Not just the, the God that society has depicted or created, but what scripture and nature reveals. Let God lead you. And that begins with our hearts eager to love and follow him. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, and I just ask that you, you push our hearts, you move our hearts, you stir us. God, I even ask for myself that as I go home this morning that I'm just transformed. That I'm changed. By this psalm that you wrote to us years ago. Father, I pray for those in this room. That they might be equipped to discern your word. God, I ask that you just work a a desire, a yearning in their heart to be led by you, to be moved by you, to be stirred by you. And that's going to overflow in actions. God, that's going to overflow in a pursuit of scripture of mastering scripture. It's going to overflow in just communion with each other, God. It's going to overflow with submissive and honest prayer. Speak to our hearts, God. Lead us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.